For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with musician Dan Hicks about his colorful career and coming back to performing after a bout with cancer. Learn how recycling glass in the desert around cells has become a story of redemption. And author Johanna Skibsrud discusses her new novel, Quartet for the End of Time. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. When you mention Dan Hicks to music fans who know the name, you'll often get back a grin and see a twinkle in the eye. Since the mid-60s, Hicks has been writing songs that combine clever, romantic lyrics with musical styles cherry-picked from across the 20th century. He started with psychedelic rock legends The Charlatans, but it's the hot licks and songs like I Scare Myself and How Can I Miss You If You Won't Go Away that are best remembered. Now at age 73, Hicks has formed a new version of the Hot Licks and celebrated his return to performing after treatment for throat cancer. Dan Hicks spoke with me from his home in Santa Rosa, California, as he prepared to go on a tour that will wind up in Tucson this Sunday. I've been traveling for a few years now with a lead guitar, two girl singers, me and a violin, mandolin player. Uh, Locally, with a bassist, around here, around the San Francisco area. Economics kind of dictated that we travel without the base. So we got got five of us out there, you know, and I mean, even when I had six, uh, I'd be talking to somebody about the gig coming up and they'd say, no drummer or something? I said, man, I mean, isn't isn't six people enough (laughs) to come to your town, USA? So... I'm still doing a pretty big band, you know. I'm not John John Hammond Jr., who can who's a single act and makes just as much money as I do, you know. But <laughs> I like the sound, so I'm not going to give it up. I mean, I, I'm not going to become. A, I don't like being a, a single act. Although I could do it, I could show up just me, sing my songs. But I like I like being on stage with other people, and I like uh, I like the sound. Well, I like working on the sound, you know. Dan, tell me about revisiting some of your old tunes. Uh, can you think of a story you can tell us about how your relationship to a song has maybe changed uh, now that you're playing it these days? Well, I am playing uh, enough songs that I did, you know, when I got everything started and did the early recordings. And, and the reason I'm playing them is because I like them. I like them still. And I, I think they're good audience tunes. And I still like to do them. I don't know. I would say maybe I do 15 of, of the. I call them like the signature tunes, or you know, I like I scare myself and where's the money and a lot of those tunes. I still I still do. They change enough just because of the the people, the personnel, you know, the people performing them. And most of the change I think is is for the good. You know, if I, if I changed anything. I might change the arrangement. I might do more of a of writing instrumental between the violin and the guitar ensemble stuff where they play at the same time, you know, and they do 
they do lines or they do solos where it's all worked out and they they do and uh, the way I write it is just sing it sing it on tape recorder sing little melodies because I don't really write out stuff myself but I do I do dream up things <laughs> so yeah so I think there's a lot of that that's that's different and you know the performance of the songs is different I think I sing a little differently maybe I've got a better range now than I did originally and I can get around on, on the scale a little better and like for instance I scare myself which I do every show no other of the, of the songs sound like that one that's got a good thing all its own so we're going to get that in there You mentioned that you feel good about your voice these days, and a lot of people in our audience probably don't know that you were sick for a while and might even have lost that voice. Yeah, about a year ago I was diagnosed with throat cancer, about a year ago. So I went into treatment and spent a couple months and doing the radiation and stuff and, um, you know, sort of postponed performing until actually last May when I finally did a concert. I, I got through all that. I still have some uh, lingering symptoms, but it seems like all th- through all that, I was still able to sing. I was working on a on a show, a thing I wanted to do in May, so I had to work on this show that needed a lot of work, uh, arrangements, and it was a Fats Waller tribute thing. I was uh, sick, but I was trying to trying to do this stuff anyway at home. And um, I was able to sing, um, and I'm able to sing now, uh, even though, like I say, I have some effects. Uh, even it even seems to me I have like a little lower range than I, if I want it. You know, I can hit some lower notes, and so maybe I maybe I even improved. I don't know. For the most part, you know, I'm uh, I'm trouble free. That's cool. You worked on a Fats Waller project. You know, I couldn't hear Fats enjoying your music and, and vice was, versa, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, that was a lot of work. It was his birthday. We did this um, at, at a place called the Jazz Center, uh, about the only jazz place left that brings in out-of-town entertainment in San Francisco. And um, we did a good good show, I thought. And it was sort of like the tail end of my treatment thing you know it was like I was still sort of weak and vulnerable and all kind of stuff when I look at it now I think uh, you know I was that's the way I was mm-hmm. you know I mean I lost uh, about 50 pounds you know yeah. but you know I saw a couple of them uh, <laughs> in the kitchen but uh, <laughs> I let them just stay there because I like, I like being 50 pounds lighter I was 50 pounds too heavy as far as I was concerned. Yeah. 
course, the old aphorism is, if you remember the 60s, you weren't really there. But I, I thought I might ask about, what's something you can think of that you miss from that era? I don't know. You know, I lived in uh, I lived in the Haight Ashbury there. Yeah. I lived in, on Ashbury, right off the of Haight. <laughs> uh, I did, at some point. And then I moved, uh, I lived uh, a couple blocks up from, from there, on another street, Del Mar. So I, so... Um, I lived, uh, that would be like, I would say 65, 68, you know, in that. That's in the that heart of it. There. Yeah. The heart of the whole movement. Yeah. Something like that. 66. I don't know. It's, it's sort of like, you know, a different person. You feel like, I would feel like I was a different person. It's hard to like, what did I miss? What do I miss from then? I, I don't know. It sounds like I don't miss anything from then. Well, that's fair. Maybe mm -hmm. I don't. It was just a phase. It was a period, and it had its had its things going. If if uh, if I miss anything, it might be the freshness of getting the hot legs started. You know, having the early rehearsals with the people, writing the early songs. You know, if I miss anything, it was like that feeling of uh, discovery. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. There are. People who live for the moment, the moment, the moment, and others who don't seem to get much enjoyment, enjoyment, enjoyment. enjoyment. some are always glad, others always sad, but lately, lately, seems that I've been somewhere in between, it's a, it's a funny feeling, love is what I mean, yes I'm so in love, can't tell down from up above, down, down, down from up above, I feel like singing. Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks will play a show on Saturday at the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix before heading to Tucson to play the Rialto Theater on Sunday night. There's more from my interview with Dan Hicks at azpm.org. In our next story, Gisela Tellis visits cells in the Tohono Autumn Nation to tell us about two men who have turned recycling into an act of redemption. They found a new way to build with concrete that's visually striking and sustainable, and its origin begins with broken glass that's been discarded in the desert. Cells, Arizona is only 60 miles from Tucson, but it's part of a different world. This is the desert where the Tohono Autumn have lived for generations. For Richard Pablo, it's a land of memories and glass. When I was growing up, a lot of people used to go out to the dances and they'd get beer and it just seemed like fun. It was something to do. Just outside the cemetery, Richard thinks as he gathers glass. The desert holds thousands of bottles, left behind over decades as drinkers finished their alcohol and moved on. Some things we take in and we think that they're cool to do or all right, or they give us a good feeling. And pretty soon before you know it, it's, it's ingrained in us. And the next thing you know, it takes over us. And a lot of people may have had dreams, hopes of doing things, and maybe it really crushed them. 
when you have groups of people that have uh, ex experienced uh, cumulative trauma, that this trauma then is uh, transmitted from generation to generation if left unresolved. Edward Grijalva, a counselor and tribal liaison with Pascoyaki and Tohono Autumn roots, says that cumulative or historical trauma grew from the violence, displacement, and forced assimilation Native American communities endured. Now it lives on, he says, in cycles of abuse and addiction. It's a soothing mechanism where people are looking for some sort of relief, although people don't uh, necessarily go to the liquor store and say, I'm, I'm experiencing trauma, can you, so I'm buying a six-pack. But if, if generations before them were doing the same thing, then they seem to think that it's okay. I grew up with this alcoholism, the alcoholism at home. I didn't have a father. As I grew up, I didn't have really nobody. It turned really ugly after a while. After a while, it's almost dependent. You get dependent on it, and after a while, you're following for myself anyway, so I was lost in it. One day, we were going to Phoenix. I was working for the district, and we are going to Phoenix, and I all of a sudden, butterflies were flowing through my body, and I didn't know what it was, and I had a stroke. Soon after that, I, they released me. Some of my family members came out and picked me up, but not even probably on a Wednesday. And by that Friday, I was out drinking and doing coke again. Nobody could stop me. And I didn't want to die with everybody feeling that way. Richard found a way to start over and soon enrolled in Tohono Autumn Community College. That's where he met environmental scientist David Stone. I was making some adobe blocks and he came up and said, hey, I heard you were working on something interesting. Uh, I'd like to find out about this. And so we began to talk. David was working on cement that's made from glass. It's a discovery he made by accident. To keep iron from rusting in his lab, he had mixed it with water and silica, the main ingredient in glass. He got a reaction he didn't expect. It hissed, it steamed, it spat, it got hot, and I threw it away. I thought, well, that didn't work. The next day when I came in, the maintenance guys had not taken the garbage away, and I looked in and I found that the chunks of this stuff had gotten very hard. David received funding from the Environmental Protection Agency to bring his project to cells. We actually thought we were going to have to go to, to Tucson, or even the Phoenix, and bring in glass from these outside cities just to demonstrate the process. And when Richard heard about this, he said, wait a minute, I'll show you glass. Richard led him to all the drinking sites he knew and the gathering began. The bottles are crushed into sand-sized and gravel-sized pieces, then combined with steel dust, water, and carbon dioxide. They react, and the iron rusts, creating a stone-like material. It's been used for several construction projects on the reservation, including a patio at the Tohono Autumn Nation Cultural Center and Museum. 
there used to be a big billboard and it had showed pictures of three autumn women and the words on the billboard were we have been in this desert for 500 years are we going to be here in another 500 years the rest of the world might fall but i think so Four years after their friendship began, David and Richard are hoping their project has a future. The EPA funding is now gone, but they have proposed that the Tohono O'odham Nation continue making the cement as a commercial venture, a chance to create jobs and help the O'odham build better lives. I had never heard the terms intergenerational trauma or historical grief, and when I did come out, I not only heard those terms, but I saw what they meant. Richard very early on told me, as we were driving away from a bottle collection site, he kind of looked at me and laughed in the way he does and says, you know, David, you are interested in recycling broken glass. I'm interested in recycling broken dreams. That's what I'm doing here. In his gathering and thinking, Richard has found a flickering hope. We can get tied up in a lot of things if we, if we let them. But if you untie those knots, there's more things to let in and it becomes more beautiful and somehow it unfolds itself and it makes more room and, there are, and it's, the fire gets bigger. I'm Gisela Tellis for Arizona Spotlight. Music and books are usually parallel styles of expression, not often combined. Author Johanna Skibsrud knew that challenges awaited when she decided to use French composer Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time as the basis for a novel. The original music was written on scraps of paper in 1941, while Messiaen was being held in a German prisoner of war camp. Its debut performance was held in the camp's yard, in the rain, for an assembly of prisoners and guards. Skibsrud embraced the music's tragic origins, but decided there was another story she wanted to tell. When I looked into the history of Messian's composition, I learned of the extraordinary ambition that he had for his piece, which was really to translate um, not only the sounds of the world around him, birdsong, um, sounds of engines um, on the road outside of the camps, um, but also the Book of Apocalypse. He, wa- he was inspired by the Book of uh, Revelation, Book of Apocalypse, and uh, he wanted to translate that into 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 song and I wanted to translate the complex uh, emotions that I felt listening to Messian's piece and thinking about uh, the set of circumstances and um, the arrangement of ideas and concerns that um, that are inherent in that piece into a novel. Was it daunting to consider writing about an era, a historical era as complex and frankly, as well documented as mm-hmm. World War II. 
Yes, of course. I mean, it was uh, it was overwhelming uh, because for exactly that reason, there was so much to explore um, and so much to consider in terms of uh, what I was going to include, and then even before that, what I was going to um, to open myself up to. Um, and uh, but it was extremely invigorating I think um, also to just plunge in and to part of my uh, inspiration too was to to recognize um, how and to explore how every story opens up onto you know countless other stories and I just wanted to to go with that momentum and to sort of stumble <laughs> through history in that way without um, a, a clear-cut plan or idea of where it was going to end up. What kind of a working relationship did you as an author build with Messian, the character that hmm. you had to create out of necessity? A difficult one, I think. Messian in the, the story of the creation for the quartet for the end of time comes into the story. It's a sort of embedded. It's a story within a story. Um, and so he does become a character in that sense. And I hope he's a complex one. I hope that readers aren't don't necessarily fall for him um, all at once, um, um, but that they aren't uh, they don't uh, feel alienated from him either. I wanted him to be both sympathetic and problematic. Um, and I wanted that character to sort of haunt, the rest of the story in which Messian doesn't show up as a, you know, actual character. Um, but um, that sort of complex figure um, who is, you know, has good intentions um, and is caught within difficult circumstances and doesn't necessarily know the right way to act or the right, right way to um, express his uh, ideas and uh, emotions. Um, I wanted uh that to sort of permeate the the novel and uh, come up in various ways and be expressed through various characters. Do you know if Messian revisited the piece after he was liberated? Did he ever perform it later in life? Yes, he did. Um, the The quartet for the end of time was uh, extremely popular um, after uh, during the war. It was performed several times in Paris, and then um, you know afterwards as well. And, you know, to a certain extent, from what I've gathered, it was, even at the time during the war, it was celebrated for the, the context in which it was written as well. And now, Johannes Skibsrud reads an excerpt from Quartet for the End of Time. The debut of the composer's quartet was set for St. Nicholas's Day, and as it drew near, he worked even more furiously to prepare. He hardly ate anymore or slept. Olivier, you must eat, warned Pasquier, otherwise you will faint away on stage before we finish the first movement. No, no, said the composer, I feel stronger than ever, but everyone could see that he did not. I must confess, he told me one night as we stood watch together. I can no longer bring myself to eat. You see, when I do manage to fall asleep these days, my hunger results in the most incredible dreams. They are more like visions than dreams, and I can't help but look forward to them. I like to pretend I am being visited by angels. Le Boulard's nightmares, on the other hand, over the weeks the musicians worked, almost as feverishly as the composer himself to prepare for the debut, became less frequent. 
By the middle of December, they had almost ceased entirely. I believe it is the music, he said one morning after a night he had slept through. It is doing me wonders. But does it ever trouble you, asked the clarinetist who had overheard, what they say? And what do they say, asked Le Boulaire. You know what, the clarinetist said, but the look on Le Boulaire's face clearly indicated he did not. That we are allowed, the clarinetist said, these privileges, our music, the composer's lectures, entertainment every Saturday night, because it looks good for the Germans in Paris that way. Does it ever occur to you, he asked, his voice deepening, that in this sense we are actually working for the Germans? Music has no part in questions of war, snapped the composer who had his head buried in his notebook and until that moment had not appeared to be listening. It cannot be used against anyone, he said. In music, we praise God and nothing, he paused, nobody, he said, emphasizing the word, else. We have been over this a thousand times, the clarinetist said. God is an instrument of the state, and now, he shrugged, so are we. Don't say that, the composer said, snapping his notebook closed and turning to stare at the clarinetist. Not saying it won't change it if it's true. If it is true, put in Le Boulaire. But we cannot be certain that it is. The Germans like the performances just as much as we do. I would say that word does not get to Paris very often, if at all. Who would want to report that German officers are enjoying the entertainment of their prisoners because they themselves cannot carry a tune? At last it was the night of the performance. The musicians assembled themselves with their instruments on stage while the prisoners, fighting for position at the door, waited for the German officers to arrive, after which point they would be free to crowd in behind. There was almost twice the regular turnout that night, and when at last the men burst into the room, there was hardly any room left even to stand. Pasquier and Le Boulaire tuned their instruments, Henri blew through his clarinet, and the composer, standing at the head of the stage, quietly surveyed the scene. It was indeed, he saw, his eyes scanning the crowd, his most international audience yet. What you're about to hear, he said, after the musicians had laid down their instruments, indicating they were ready to begin, is an apocalypse, in the true sense of the word, a revelation, a music without time, but performed within time, because, for now, his voice trembled with emotion. He had waited for this moment, after all, for so long. For now, he said again, his eyes for a brief moment coming to rest on Brühl, seated in the front row. It is all we have. Johannes Skibsrud read from her novel Quartet for the End of Time. Sound design was by Mitchell Riley, using the original composition by Olivier Messiaen. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. The music is by Calexico. 
I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.